0: Let's all drill holes in our retro and turn them into lamps. More about this and other stories in This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology.
1: The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Mine Bitcoin with your C64.
0: Destroying retro for art. Sega sells its western arcade division. And whipping up a pie storm. All this and our Community Question of the Week On This Week in Retro, up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.
1: Neil, news is swirling around blockchain technology these days, even in the retro world. Um, A few weeks ago, we talked about Atari's NFT sneakers, and Mm. since then, they've expanded into selling NFT versions of their cartridges. Which I thought they would go for, you know, in the beginning, uh, for thousands and thousands of dollars <laughs> a piece. I read a report that said they'd made over a hundred thousand dollars in NFT sales last month.
0: Wow, you know, it'd make more sense to go down the cartridge route than the sneakers route. But um, mm-hmm. just just to refresh us on what NFTs are, because it is still still a fairly fresh thing coming into the mainstream uh so nft is non-fungible token and it's been used to confirm ownership of digital things art for example so you can via the magic of blockchain say that i am the owner of this original version of this microsoft paint picture that's me i'm the first and the original owner and it would seem that people do currently see value in that because um, digital art ones and zeros has now been sold at Christie's with NFT proof of ownership uh, at the Mm -hmm. auction house for sums of over $6 million. Insane amounts of money have changed hands. Even if that bitmap image has been copied and shared uh, all over the internet, the fact that you can say, I am the NFT owner, I am the original owner of this work of art, you know, it's got a perceived value. And I can see why, because it's kind of like, uh, perhaps in a copyright situation, you could use it to leverage that and say, I am the owner, pay me my royalties, I don't know if that's an intended use of it but that's how my mind is figuring out this new thing um yeah still trying to figure it out but um when it comes to cartridge games from atari if you're buying the nfts for a cartridge you're not really buying the rights to that game because that game was made a long time ago and right you know, you're, you're neither buying the
1: you're not you're not buying the rights you're not buying the right to license the artwork or you're you know you're not right buying the uh the actual of course physical cartridge either um all you're buying is the nft saying that you own the nft of missile command for the atari 2600 it's a weird thing
0: so it doesn't give you the right to then redistribute that or sell it right it's just uh, these ones and zeros are my ones and zeros It's still very confusing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what about the other big blockchain technology? I'm talking about cryptocurrency. You know, we're currently experiencing another Mm. new surge of interest and rise in prices of Bitcoin and other virtual currencies.
0: Neil, did you ever try your hand at a bit of uh, the old crypto mining? I did, and I hate it whenever anyone brings this up. (laughs) Um, I mined, and I also bought Bitcoin in the past. I'd say I've I've bought more than I've, I've, I've ever mined let's get back to 2010 john uh, i bought 50 pounds worth of bitcoin in 2010 just to see how it all worked because you know people were talking about it on mainly on reddit i think i saw you know mm-hmm. it was still pretty underground but it was being talked about mm-hmm. quite a lot and i thought okay let's buy some let's see how it works so 50 pounds is what i put down um and that bought about a thousand bitcoins
1: Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh!
0: And you know, after a couple of weeks, I thought, you know, I've got rent to pay, I've got bills to pay. Um, that fifty pounds is a lot of money, so I should get that money back. Now I've I know how Bitcoin works, so I sold it, and I, and I got my probably got fifty pounds, and maybe I got fifty one pounds back, and I and I thought, yeah, that's a good deal. I've made profit <laughs> on Bitcoin. I figured out how it works, <laughs> and um yeah, this this uh, week prompted me to go and check out the value of Bitcoin, and. um it's now sitting at about 38,000 pounds of coin so i would have had 38 million pounds worth of bitcoin today if i just oh put that on a usb stick in its wallet in my pocket and sat on it but you know um, you can say that about a lot of things if i'd bought sure. apple stock in the mid 90s you know tesla stock if i'd placed a bet on a football team it, it's not something that i really think about with a lot of regret uh, you know i'm sure many people did the same just to figure it out and um you know I have more recently stuck an amount in Bitcoin that I can afford to lose because that's that's the way to gamble isn't it you have to be prepared Mm -hmm. to lose that money and I'm just going to forget about it for 10 years and and maybe in 10 years time it will pay off a loan or or something like that maybe it will come to fruition maybe it won't and I think that's the way to do it so um yeah you know you probably won't believe me when I say no regrets that I don't have 38 million pounds in my pocket right now but I genuinely don't have ill feeling it's just an opportunity that came and passed like a lottery ticket, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I feel the same way. I I did a little bit of mining a few years ago during the first Bitcoin bubble, you know, when the price went up to about $10,000. And, and, but the the idea of running my computer 24 seven and keeping my, you know, very expensive GPU going full blast (laughs) quickly convinced me that I would never make enough cash mining to offset the possible malfunction of either of those two components. Now of course I was wrong because if I would have kept doing that from 2017 to now, I could have bought 30 GPUs, but of course you just <laughs> never know. Um, now, what in the world could all this possibly have to do with our show and Classic Computers? Well, you knew it was coming sooner or later. There. Thanks to a tip from subreddit user OzRetroComp, uh, I've just read about the first Bitcoin miner for the Commodore 64, Neil. This thing has been released by Polish developer Maciej Witkak. I'm sure I'm butchering <laughs> that name. Uh, now, as you probably know, Bitcoin is mined by a process known as hashing, which is performing mathematical computations. And Bitcoin miners are rewarded with Bitcoin for this processing. So just to give you an idea of the raw speed and power of the C64 Bitcoin mining platform, it has a recorded hash rate of, get ready, 02 Hashes per second. Now, you might ask yourself, how does that compare with a modern mining rig? Well, according to this article on Hackster.io, these computers are processing. um, If you have a modern Bitcoin mining rig. Uh, you, you want to measure your hashing in giga hashes. <laughs> That's <laughs> billions of hashes. So the C64.2. So obviously this is a neat parlor trick for your C64 is you're going to spend much more in electricity than you'll ever earn mining that sweet, sweet virtual currency. But it does show that classic computers can be adapted to modern applications. Um, Neil, is there something you've been really impressed with seeing a classic computer do that was actually helpful in
0: some way? I can't say I have massively outside of entertainment and just in the example of that C64 mining for Bitcoin, the value of the C64 will probably increase more than any amount of Bitcoin that you could mine <laughs> in, it in a year. That's very true. We just put yeah. it in a cupboard. <laughs> just don't risk destroying it. Um, right. But yeah, outside of entertainment, you know, if you need something done reliably and helpfully in the modern day, there are so many cheap, reliable options that don't involve depending on a 40 year old piece of hardware. and. um Yeah, I can't really think of anything right now, but uh, I have a feeling you might have something for me, John.
1: Yeah, a few months back uh, we talked about the Fujinet adapter for the Atari Mm 8-bit line of computers and how it was able to interface with weather stations to provide graphical real-time forecasts. Uh, I still think that that kind of ambient information is an excellent use for older machines and just having them turned on and displaying changing information, it it, it makes my heart happy. So. Uh, If you want to download the C64 Bitcoin miner and try it out on your internet-enabled bread bin, uh, just click the link in the show notes. And if you get it running, be
0: sure and leave us a link in the comments. Finding modern uses for old machines is one thing, John, but old uses for new machines is where the fun is really at. And bringing the fun to my desktop PC is AmigaForever.com, who I'd like to thank for sponsoring today's show. Amiga Forever is a one-click solution for firing up Amiga emulators, games, enjoying the demo scene perhaps, listening to mod music, whatever it is you want to get your fix of retro on your modern daily driver machine. It's the official way to easily and legally obtain the system ROMs as part of the package and to take away the pain of emulator configuration. And the premium edition includes three DVDs worth of content, including software and some amazing interviews from J. Miner and Dave Haney
1: thank you amigaforever.com for supporting this week in retro
0: john do you ever see those posts on social media or ebay listings where someone has taken a playstation and uh refashioned it if you like into a bedside lamp by drilling a massive hole in the top of it and rendering it completely destroyed as a console do you know the the pictures (laughs) i mean every day neil every day i see
1: this on reddit i see it on facebook Uh, I don't want to even tell you about the N64 I saw, that someone had turned into a portable system by basically taking a hacksaw and cutting away the middle of the console and putting a screen there, then cutting a hole for the D-pad where the on-off switch was. It was a monstrosity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like they might have been inspired by the likes of Ben Heck, who who, who can do that kind of thing beautifully and has the skills and access to the people who can you know make a perfect looking finish but oh there are some horror shows out there you know I really have uh seen things John I've seen bad things usually <laughs> it's bad paint jobs that's quite a common thing to come across um but at least in that instance the machine will still operate but when you turn a machine into an ornament with no regard for the reason it existed in the first place you know for its whole purpose in life I think that's taking things too far lamps are a very common example and, um, you know, people get carried away, they get drill happy, and I understand that. But sadly, this behavior is now being legitimized in a way as it has made its appearance on the BBC of all places. I know you're a fan of The Repair Shop. You watch that quite frequently, don't you, John?
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. But
0: there's another series that i would never actually heard of on the BBC, and it's called Saved and Remade. At first glance, it looks a bit like a pound shop. A repair shop, you know, it's, it's okay. a real knockoff of the <laughs> format. Um, right. And and Reddit user Hastian Z or Z has shared this story with us, along with a link to the show. So is this a this is is this a classic, beautiful repair shop style restoration? <laughs> no, now? no, 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 far from it. So. <laughs> It's the familiar format. A guy turns up with something old that he cherishes, uh, cherishes the memories of. And then an expert takes a look at that thing, makes recommendations on what to do with it. And then we're treated to the process of the the seasoned expert doing their thing, you know, putting decades of experience to work, sweeping shots of the workshop, rousing music, the usual mm-hmm. repair shop style. Oh, yeah. And uh, what this guy brings in is uh, what I can make out on the table is a PlayStation, a Mega Drive 2 with the Mega CD attached to it a Sega Game Gear, a Super Nintendo, a Game Boy Color, and I think there's a Game Boy Advance there. And and also there's an Atari console. Um not quite sure which one it is. The The more wedgy one, is that the 7000 oh, Maybe
1: the, the, the 5200 maybe? Maybe the 5200. Yeah, yeah.
0: One of the two. Anyway, so what the expert does is he creates a table, which he shapes like a Super Nintendo joypad. Uh, he gives it a plastic finish because he wants it to look like a pad. and this this is a big table it's for the guy to put his PC on and use every day and then into that table (laughs) he embeds parts of the various original retro consoles he just rips them apart rips out PCBs hacks them up embeds them in the table oh it's oh no. so so sad to watch and he, he incorporates into this table things like the flip-top lids of the PlayStation and the Mega CD so they serve no purpose not like you can put a cup of coffee in there you just press a button and the old sad lid pops up it's, it's almost like it's saying save me save <laughs> yeah. me and then you just push it back down no you're a table now it's it's horrible to see um it's a bit like uh was it in the alien films where people were trapped in the walls uh, being mm, yeah. harvested it's just like that old retro consoles being harvested in this table is it's, uh, it's, it's, it's so horrible.
1: sad because there's no, there's no upside. It's not as if when he finishes, you can look at the thing and say, boy, I sure am glad that this exists now. <laughs> no. It's, it's, this is the most disturbing death for a classic console I can think of. It's like Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs come to life. It's, it is. it's, it's awful. It's
0: so sad. It's, it's humiliating. I feel sorry for these consoles. Uh, it really yeah. is a horror movie. And it got me thinking, there are so many examples of this kind of thing. Is there ever a good thing to do with an old retro console other than restore it? for original purpose have you ever seen a conversion that actually works for you john well here's the thing uh if you've
1: got stuff that's broken stuff that that can't be savage salvaged and it, it, if it was on its way to the dump you know if you're just like you know i'm just going to throw this stuff out because it's 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 all broken i don't know anybody that knows how to fix it I think you have some leeway there for a creative rebuild. I wouldn't totally be against turning, you know, a, a, an old broken down machine into something like a lamp. If it turns it into an object that you can look at and it gets those nostalgia juices flowing again for you, you know, I I'm not as dead set against this sort of thing as some people are, provided that you're not taking a working system and destroying it. Um, I have an old broken Pong console that's uh, missing the power adapter and it doesn't have a way to connect to any TV that's been made in the past 40 years. And I've contemplated just removing the insides completely and putting some kind of like multi-Pong system on a chip in there, just leaving the hull intact and replacing the insides. But if you're physically pulling components off of systems, just random buttons and and lids to glue onto a piece of furniture, like uh, some sort of like demonic decoupage, you know, heck no, heck no, hell no,
0: Neil. No, no. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the the way you've explained your Pong console there is you could do it in a sympathetic and reversible way. You know, you can put it in it safely in a box to one side and it can be reversed whether you'd ever actually reverse it or not is is another thing but you know you might donate that pile to a to a museum sometime or something like that sure i think the closest i think the uh, thing that i've seen to repurposing old tech that i liked was uh, it was a wall made of cassette tapes um th- this is a room divider which i've seen and it's just made up of old cassette tapes and it just looks really cool it just looks really nice the way they've done it and when when i think about cassette tapes i think about just how disposable they were i think about all the cassettes that i saw thrown out of car windows strewn along the side of the road you know they really there really was a disposable feeling and nature of them um at their peak and we weren't really of the mindset of recycling and you know yes anyone who threw rubbish out of a car window was an idiot even back then but Mm -hmm. um you know it's it's nicer to see these things recycled and used and especially if they're not original tape games, for example, if they're just copied cassettes with some nice handwriting on there, that it makes a really nice display. So I really liked that one. Uh, I, th- I think that's probably the best example I've seen. I might even try to recreate it. I've got so many cassette tapes loose in boxes here. I'd like to see that in the cave, Neil. I think that would yeah. be really cool. Yeah so if you'd like to see that or if you'd like to experience the horror of the game station table (laughs) made on the the tv show this week check out the show notes for links and also i would say go and give a youtube channel called the grumpy retro gamers a look um give them a sub on youtube and twitter because that's a channel on which they often spot and review this kind of thing um they review it very creatively (laughs) it's quite (laughs) entertaining so go check them out too
1: Neil, we usually have a lot of great news on This Week in Retro, whether it's new hardware, new software, nostalgic anniversaries, but every once in a while, a real downer slips in. Um, according to a story posted on our show subreddit by Stark uh, Starcade 2084, Sega has made the decision to sell its Western arcade division. Uh, they were known as Sega Amusements International. The, the Western arm of the Sega arcade empire incurred huge losses during the COVID-19 pandemic. And perhaps this only hastened the inevitable given the current state of arcades in North America and Europe. So, now Neil, uh, Sega has released some of the most iconic arcade machines of all time. Do you have a
0: favorite? I sure have. For some reason, whenever I think of uh, Sega, I think of um, racing games, that's where my mind mm-hmm. goes. You know, mm-hmm. I think of OutRun, I think of Enduro Racer, Virtua Racer, Sega Rally, Daytona, all of those great games. Um, F three five five Challenge Ferrari F three five five. That's one I've never actually got to play in the arcades, and I always. I,
1: ha- I have played that one, and it's, yeah. it 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 blew me away because it was one of those that had the multiple screens that wrapped around you, and it really felt like the the, the way that the wheel would respond was just incredible. I'm sure that those cost a mint these days, but I'd love to play one again.
0: Yeah, I never got to play one. I always heard great things, and I always imagined it to be like the. The next two or three generations a long version of like hard driving i know there was right. a stunt track but it must have had that kind of feel that vibe to yeah it. um so yeah uh, sega were consistently nailing the racing gaming arcades for me in a way that you would struggle to recreate at home with some of the cabinets that you could sit in um yeah really good unique experiences they, they always delivered with racing what about you what, what stood out for you Uh, For me,
1: I've got to go with OutRun. Um, Well, we've talked about OutRun several times on the show, so I'm going to pick another one. Um, Close behind it is Pingo. I don't know if you've heard of Pingo before, Neil, but this is an early, early Sega arcade title from 1982. Uh, You play the role of Pingo the Penguin, and uh, you have to clear levels by pushing blocks of ice to destroy enemies and create patterns. It's one of those early arcade machines, which is just as addictive now as it was when it was released almost 40 years ago. Funnily
0: enough, it is a regular at one of the expos that I go to there's a machine so i have played that one yeah really enjoyable game oh i'm glad to hear that
1: um now it's worth noting that sega had already sold their japan-based arcade division last year so again you probably could have seen this move coming but the difference is that in japan sega controlled the entire experience they owned the buildings you know everybody's seen pictures of the big sega arcade buildings the multi-story buildings they they paid all the staff they manufactured all the machines. It was a big, big expense. In contrast, the Western Division, Sega Amusements International, uh, they were mostly in the business of providing machines and repair parts to independent arcades throughout the region. So it was a different business model here in the West. Now, the good news about this sale is that at least for the short term, Everything will continue to operate in much the same way, uh, according to the source article in Game Rant. Uh, Sega Amusements International was sold from Sega to its its management staff, who is headed up by a guy named Paul Williams. He's a 20-year veteran of the company, who I guess is just going to strike out on his own with all this stuff. So, just like so many corporate takeovers these days, uh, Sega branding will remain on everything for better or worse. So most people won't even know that this change has happened. Uh, We're all awash uh, in that these days. Uh, After all, the Atari making NFTs is a far cry from the Atari that released the 2600 or even the Jaguar. Um, Neil, can you think of any time a corporation has taken over a classic video game brand and actually improved it?
0: That's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, Even when you see great new games like Streets of Rage 4 is a more recent example, which are made by a completely different company and different team, it stands up in its own right as a great game, but it's so different and the passage of time has been so long that um it's not a case of one game is improved or better than the other it's just a case of this is a great game and it makes me want to go back and play that old great game as well they're they're both wonderful in their own right and in their own period and um there's lots of examples um you know examples of the style of a brand being continued even if there wasn't a technically a management takeover so Uh, The ex LucasArts team members always spring to mind when they make games like Thimbleweed Park, but Mm -hmm. that's just a continuation of the brand by association. Right. And And you
1: wonder how much of that brand was just Ron Gilbert to
0: begin with. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of modern versions of old games have come about through very iterative processes of of studios buying studios over a period of decades and, and leveraging the assets that came with them. So. Brands haven't always had a chance to fall into the class of retro or classic because, you, you know, you get a new one with every generation. So it, it's hard, really. Um, I may be overthinking this, but uh, what, one that does spring to mind for me is is the return of Microprose, which has been in the news in the last year or so. It, it's a big, big name from the simulation world back in the 80s or 90s, and it has returned. And we're seeing new games in development, but they haven't been released yet. So they're, they're yet to prove themselves. We can't say that they've improved and it would be a big ask to improve on the great things that Microprose did back in the day. And of course, one of the people that's resurrecting it is Wild Bill Steely, who was one of the original co-founders in 1982. So it's kind of half a takeover. There's still the original guy involved who's, who's brought it back to regain control of it. So struggling to give you an example, John, but Microprose is, is where my hopes are pinned at the moment. In particular, B-17 Flying Fortress the VR version, multiplayer version that they're talking about. And the news on that has gone quiet recently. They're talking about other games, so I'm a mm. bit worried. I want to mm. see that game. Yeah, can you think of any?
1: Um, well, you know, just looking into the past. Some companies that are, you know, reacquired and keep their branding do a great job, and some of them are just total train wrecks. One of the one of the shiny examples I actually think is SNK. Uh, as you probably know, the original SNK sold to Playmore in two thousand three, and they've gone through several ups and downs. But I think that they've done a pretty good job. You know, half of the battle is just keeping their games out there for people to buy and continue to play. A lot of these companies just sort of lock away their back catalog for some sort of indefinite future release, and it leaves the fans of the brand, you know, unable to you know uh, experience the games if they want to in a legal way. And uh, SN- the, the new SNK has been really good about putting up titles on steam you know republishing their games through the switch and putting out those the mini consoles whether you actually are a fan of the the the, the consoles that snk has put out at least they exist at least they're giving you a way to continue to play these games if you want to and uh, you know new game development continues there was a new version of Windjammers, jammers which is my favorite neo geo game uh, that was released on the ps4 just a couple of years ago so anyway we'll definitely be keeping an eye on what's going on with sega right now and hopefully their legacy and classic lineup of games won't be tarnished by whatever comes next from this new management team Neil, our next story is about an exciting new amiga upgrade and speaking of amiga and indeed commodore upgrades capacitor kits diagnostic tools and more retrorewind.ca is your one-stop shop for all your needs Uh, they've got Commodore 64, 128, 16, Plus 4, and Amiga systems all have a virtual shopping aisle at Retro Rewind and include such useful items as replacement edge connectors for when the corroding fingers of time have damaged your machine (laughs) beyond the abilities of Brasso and elbow grease to repair. You can can save 10% off your order, any order from Retro Rewind by using the promo code TWIR10 at
0: checkout. Thank you to Retro Rewind for supporting our show today. John, we covered a new accelerator card recently called the Buffy, the so-called Vampire Slayer, which intends to set a new speed record by accelerating your Amiga, and um, possibly all classic 68000-based computers eventually, but they're focusing in on the Amiga first of all. Now there's another challenger entering the ring. Who would have believed that in 2021, the 68,000 CPU accelerator market would be so hotly contested? It really is. It's a war out there, John. (laughs) And uh, the newest device on the scene is called the Pi Storm. And uh, as you can probably guess from the name, it's a Raspberry Pi based solution. So that keeps the costs down and the cost of development down. And it promises to act as um, up to about a 68030 CPU running at 70 to 80 megahertz, up to 128 meg of RAM, It will have virtual SCSI devices and swappable Kickstart ROMs all built into its features, as well as HDMI video output, which you can tap into from the Raspberry Pi's HDMI port itself and get video from the Amiga out there. It's the work of Claude Schwartz, who has made it open source. Uh, And and when you add up the cost of a Pi, this little adapter board that connects it to the 68,000 port, and then the Pi sits on top of that, you add up the cost of that, an SD card, you're still going to come in at under £100 or under $100 to, to have this, and it would give you pretty much every upgrade you could ever really want in an Amiga, so I am really excited about this. Now, John, we're seeing all of these super fast upgrades for the Amiga. Is there a limit to what you want to see added to an Amiga? Are some of these upgrades just too much?
1: Well, at some point, you do need to ask yourself the question. You know, when is this machine? This machine that was produced in 1989, 1992, whenever? When is it still actually the machine, or when is it just a shell? You know, when is it like the Pong console I was telling you about? Uh, <laughs> of course, the answer is going to be different for everybody, but uh, it's it's more of a personal judgment, I think, than anything. Uh, just for me. When you get to the point where most, if not all, of the heavy lifting is being done by third-party modern tools, I, I think at that point you've basically cobbled together the equivalent of a, one of those new C64 Maxis, you know, in an Amiga form, uh, where you've got the full-size shell, but basically a fully modern system under the hood connected to the keyboard and the ports. But here's my hot take, Neil. It doesn't matter. Uh, the whole point of retro computing is a hobby is to make you feel like you're either a using a machine just like you did when you were younger or b using a machine you could never afford to buy but you always lusted after and that's why i think most of us are in this hobby now what do you think neil
0: i think i'm so glad you said that and and you're not a snob john i love it <laughs> <laughs> i was worried where that was going but you you brought it back around again uh, it's always a tricky question but when the alternative is 500 pounds of rare upgrades to achieve this kind of power, you know a line does have to be drawn. Do I want to see what an Amiga is capable of when it's upgraded to the hilt? Of course I do. Everyone wants to see that. Is it reversible? Yes, you can just pop it out and put the original CPU back in. And in the case of the Pi Storm, the Amiga's custom chips are still doing their thing, and the rest of the system hasn't gone cold to allow the Pi to do everything in in the style of say the vampire in a certain mode not all modes but in a certain mode the vampire will just take over everything so mm-hmm. i think the PyStorm storm on on paper it offers a nice balance um but the question is what will we do with all of this power so john have you seen any games or software that actually make use of super powerful upgrades like this it, it feels like there's a bit of a chicken and egg situation where they're expecting people to make the software because the power now exists but <laughs> they've got to get the card and there's got to be the market and people have got to buy the card for the market to exist. It really does feel like chicken and egg.
1: You see this with almost everything in the retro computing space. I mean, or even even contemporarily in the Amiga's life, you know, uh, how many games continue to be ECS, OCS, well into the AGA future, just because people were writing for the most Amigas that were out there, which was the Amiga 500. So uh, in, you know, these days with in, in Amiga game development, you've got the Scorpion engine, the Red Pill engine, and both of those love super-fast processors. Uh, a lot of games uh, that are produced with these engines run incredibly slow if you try them out on original machines. And so I, my, I guess my answer is technically yes. Uh, there, there are games or other software that make use of these powerful upgrades. Of course, any sort of rendering application is going to take as much speed as you can throw at it. But yeah. in, in the gaming world... Uh, there are games out there the quality of these games is somewhat debatable you know I've played quite a few of them through through my time with the Amigos and uh but they do exist and they will take advantage of the of those faster processors sure that's
0: the problem isn't it it's a bit like when you go and explore the games library of the Atari Falcon right (laughs) it's like okay yeah this game scrolls pretty quickly but it's a terrible game um, yeah I'm sure there are one or two good examples out there but that's been my experience so that's the problem isn't it and it's not really the raw CPU power of the Pi Storm that interests me it's, it's the other bits like the scuzzy hard drive emulator and the kickstart ROM switcher built in and um yeah going back to that is it a real Amiga question if you bought a hard drive for your Amiga 500 that would hang off the side all the chips needed were in the hard drive they were never in the a500 itself Um, You needed an A600 for a hard drive controller or or one of the other models. So that was never a part of the original board. Likewise, you might add a kickstart ROM switcher to your Amiga, but that's just ROMs that that's just software. Um, And whether that loads from a ROM or from your SD card uh, or, or a physical ROM, you know, it really makes no difference to the authenticity of the experience for me. So it's not all about the CPU, but here's the exciting bit, John. I've taken delivery of a pi storm board i'm going to build my own pi storm this week i'm going to test it out and we'll find out if all the promises are true if it works as it says on paper if it introduces new quirks because surely that raspberry pi has a boot processor process before it's usable you know that that maybe there's a little delay when you start it Mm -hmm. up i don't know we'll we'll find out all of these things and see if it breaks the authenticity of the experience or if it feels like a good upgrade and, and good value for money so um yeah, watch this space and go and find out more about the Pi Storm in this week's show notes.
1: Before we move on to our community question of the week, a quick update from our story last week about the Osborne series of books being available online. Alan, one of our listeners and probably most famous for putting you, Neil, into the uh, ZX Spectrum game Jetpack, uh, reached out to them and was granted permission for him to start a YouTube series on how to code games in Z80 on the Spectrum. So if you'd like to check out that out and follow along, check out his YouTube channel, Happy Coding.
0: There was also another update from a story last week. We were talking about the Quake Wars, the 486 Quake story. Mm-hmm. And um, I've heard that the CPU Galaxy, who was the, the leader in the in the Quake competition, has taken his 486 now with with liquid cooling up to 200 megahertz. Oh my so, gosh. So uh, check out his YouTube <laughs> channel to see how the, the Quake battle continues. <laughs>
1: Now, Neil, last week's community question of the week was related to our frog find story, and it was, what was your first
0: experience with the internet? Neil, what did our subreddit users have to say? Well, I'd love to tell you, John, but this week I'm using a compact Armada with a Pentium processor in it, and I don't think it's gonna load Reddit, so. I, I'm, uh, gonna have to, I'm gonna have <laughs> to take over, I guess.
1: Our top upvoted answer comes to us from Quan Mang. And uh, this user says, I used newsgroups a lot when in college in the very early 90s, downloaded various things from the dot binaries groups. I ended up doing it from the labs, mostly as, if I recall correctly, we had to use dial-up to access the university's servers from our own computers. And that was much slower than their direct T1 connection. So, uh, did you use the newsgroups back in your early internet days, Neil?
0: Yes, I did use the news groups usually to find the the latest movie or or video game crack. No CD cracks. That was a good place to go for them. Mm. Um, Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) No one knows for sure.
1: (laughs) Um, Erringus says, September 1995, I seem to recall, was when I first logged into the Internet. I had bought a Motorola 288 uh, modem from Dixon's, and I recall asking the shop assistant what ISP I should go for. He muttered something about CompuServe, at which point I knew he didn't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> Um what was your first? Uh, you say AOL was your first ISP, right Neil? Uh,
0: no no it was Demon. Uh,
1: I did Demon, try AOL okay.
0: but Demon.net was, was my first one over here and yeah it was a good quality service. But a little later in the 90s there was a service called screaming.net uh, mm. which came on a CD like AOL free CD and it was completely free. Um all calls were free. Uh, the, the only catch being it, you would download at about 0.2 kilobits per second. It was oh. it was slow. But, you know, for me, that was magical because I would use um, a download manager called GitWrite. I'd just mm-hmm. queue up all of my downloads, Neo Geo ROMs, and I downloaded <laughs> the entire Neo Geo ROM library legally because I owned all the originals. Um, Absolutely. Uh, over the course of probably about six months. <laughs> but
1: it was so worth it
0: me say so <laughs> that's
1: great. Um, Aringus goes on to say yeah, he remembers signing up for UK Online, which I guess was a competitive service, making sure I only ever used it during the low peak hours, so it was one p per minute. For the local phone charge, that's something that's always astonished me. Is that in the UK you had a local phone charges? You were charged by that was something we never had in the states. Local calls were always
0: free here. We'd watch programs like Roseanne uh, that mm-hmm. was aired, aired over here, and we'd get anxiety. Like, what are you doing? It's in the daytime. Put the <laughs> phone down. And why are your phone cables so long? <laughs> And finally, uh, we had
1: uh, Audio Collapse, or Audio Collapse, probably. He says, 1996-97, printing pages upon pages of Tekken 2 moves. I remember the internet was a, is a, was a great resource for anybody that was into fighting games, because that was where the move lists were. You no longer had to buy them for 5 bucks from a shady-looking character hanging out in the
0: arcade. You know, I always wanted to pull off the fatalities in Mortal Kombat, and I'd look up those move lists, and I'd print them out. I could never do it. No. It didn't matter that I had the move lists. I could never pull them off. (laughs) Well, when the pressure's on, I just always locked up, and it was
1: over. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, thank you to everyone that submitted answers for our Community Question of the Week. Uh, Next week's Community Question of the Week is, what is your favorite Sega arcade game? So, please post your responses on the show's subreddit, upvote your favorites, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on next week's show.
0: This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join
1: our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us
0: reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.